Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This is the second part of a panel discussion on the modern market held in September of 2011. The panelists are four leading private dealers, Guy Bennett, Nicholas McLean, Nicholas Acavella, and Heli Namad. In this section, you'll hear how Giorgio Morandi became popular among Chinese collectors, which artists these four considered undervalued four years ago, and a great deal about the way in which art dealers view art, their clients, and the marketplace. Listen to the end. Some of the comments in response to questions are the best part of the podcast. So um, to answer your question, there was a lot of Chinese collectors bidding and have actually acquired works by Giorgio Morandi, who's an Italian artist. Um, The reason that that I believe they particularly were after Morandi is because, one, he relates a lot to their sensibility. I think that the Chinese culture, I hate to to singulate their culture uh, in that way, but the Chinese culture, they like sort of Morandi's soft palette and they like a sort of subdued imagery of, of the works and his still lives. But more importantly, from a market standpoint, uh, Zhang Fanzi, who's the most, one of the most important living Chinese contemporary artists, um, took a huge public liking to Morandi, and he started collecting Morandi. Uh, he liked Balthus as well, and I think that the Chinese collectors, you know, they talk a lot amongst each other, and he was a very big influence. And I believe that that's also another reason why the Chinese were very active in that market in February in London. Nick Acrovella, you uh, want to comment on that? You know something about Zhang Wanji. Well, yeah, I mean, I think what Heli's saying is true. And also, you know, it's at the beginning of, of we're in the beginning stages of people from mainland China, China starting to collect the type of art that the four of us deal in. And um, I, I think you have to be a little bit cautious that something like the Morandi story or something doesn't... I mean, it can only take one or two people to make it seem like everyone in China wants a Morandi. I mean... Uh, <laughs> yes, three yeah. is a trend in, in, but, in but, the media. Right? But I think the other side of that is that it doesn't really take more than one or two people to change a market. And so whether it be a handful of people following Fonzie's lead and getting interested in Morandi, I mean, that will change the market for the world. And I think that's what's so unique about our business is that, um, and, and why sometimes it is, um, seems like it's a little bit disconnected from the rest of the world and the rest of the economy, is that you're dealing with such a small sliver of the population, and the population isn't even the right word to use. It's just such a small sliver of the upper class that collects art, or, or the wealthiest, you know, one percent of one percent that's out there. So you have something where, uh, yeah, I mean, this can also relate back to what we were talking about earlier about the Giacometti market. I mean, that was a couple players really changing things dramatically, and. Uh, it can make it frustrating as a dealer. Driven, driven by what? what? What was the trigger that made those, you know, handful got, of, you know, the people? Yeah, that's the people that were bidding on it. But I mean, obviously, it was, uh, you know, people know what they had, know what they wanted to spend. They were determined to get certain works. Uh, there is a scarcity to them, 
And when one became available, they didn't want to run the risk of, you know, having to wait till the next one comes available. And, uh, and then, you know, with sculpture, it gets into an interesting situation because when one cast sells for X, does it mean the next one is? It doesn't mean the next one is necessarily worth the same because you, it's a different situation. You've already satisfied the needs of one buyer. But, but in that asset sense where, you know, it, that sector of the economy, the wealthiest people who are now global, also have very few places to put their, the money that they have. And it seems increasingly that this kind of art, the emphasis on the A work, the A-plus work, is as much driven by aesthetic values as it also is by uh, the asset value. The idea that you will get money out of the, that, that it's less volatile at the top end, and that there's a certain anchoring effect, right? If there is a $100 million Giacometti, it makes it easier for the other ones to rise towards that. That's right. Well, I think one of the like, really major moments in the last 15 years in the art market was when um, the Noya Gallery, with the help of Ronald Lauder, purchased that Klimt for $135 million. Because I think you could argue that Klimt, similar to Giacometti, or someone, is not necessarily straight down the middle mainstream artist. So you took that mark of $135 million for a Klimt, and it made it a lot easier to digest the idea of, well, if, if a Klimt is worth $135, certainly their Picasso's worth that, certainly their de Kooning's worth that, certainly their Pollock's. I think if you analyze private sales, which is pretty much impossible to do, but just even took what you'd heard rumors about, you would find that after that transaction, so many other artists achieved new highs. And I don't know if it was subconsciously on people's minds. I mean, it's something I've always thought about, but I don't know if other people shared the same opinion. But there's just no question that all of a sudden it was like, you know, there is some, th- these values can be real. I mean, my yeah. father has told my brother and sister and I used stories that, you know, there used to be a time when no one thought something would sell for $10 million. And, the, I mean, I've only been working in, uh, our, you know, I graduated from college in 2000. And when I first got to the gallery, if someone had told me that it would be common for pictures to sell over $100 million, common being happened more than once a decade, I would have had trouble believing it. Now, I mean, it changes very quickly. You guys all buy as well as sell. You have skin in the game in, in all of this. Uh, given the kinds of changes that you talked about, which artists do you see, whether you're buying them yourself or not, as the kinds of artists that you think, if you hold them for two, three, five years, will increase in value, and and why? What's the the collecting pressure? We talked uh, about the Chinese. It'd also be interesting to talk about the Russian buyers and which artists they're sort of uh, putting pressure on. Well, with all these new, uh, as we have covered, with all these new regions of the world entering the market, you have Russia, China, and the Middle East. Those are the three biggest forces entering our market. So if you want to buy purely as an investment, you have to really be able to foreshadow where those regions where their tastes and sensibilities are going to be in the future. Which kind of art will they want to buy in the future? That is really what is going to move the market in the next five to ten years. Europe and the United States today have tremendous financial difficulties. You can see it on the news every day. People don't trust the equity markets. The financial markets are pretty much 
in the gutter. We, every government owes money. They, they're all in debt. So you look at these countries, maybe India is coming along as well. Brazil, South America is definitely entering. And you have to really anticipate what you think is they're going to, their sensibilities are going to be. And their sensibilities are going to be developed by museum exhibitions, by, by them, these mega wealthy collectors from those brick countries hiring private curators and, and, and I think that that is exactly the right exercise if you're looking for two, three, four, five hundred percent returns on purely on the investment. So I believe that Picasso is a fantastic artist. We, everyone loves him. He's mainstream. He's already gone up tremendously. I think he will continue to go up. But to really think a little bit outside the box, and I covered this point earlier, is to look at late Miro paintings, to look at late Leger paintings, and to look at late Kandinsky paintings. And when I mean late, I mean late in their lives, that they were painted post, you know, when they were already considered, um, a long time ago, the late works were considered not as good. And I think that if you can take good examples, because of course the artists do get uneven at the end of their lives, and they have some terrible examples as well, always stick to the good examples, even if it's late works or early works, you should always purchase or invest, I should say, in the good examples. But I think that there's still room to buy the late works of those artists for relatively good value, not very expensively, and those are the ones that I think have a lot of room to grow. I can't speak to other markets, and I certainly can't speak to what other collectors are going to want to collect in 10 years. if I could, I certainly wouldn't be sitting here. I'd be back on the beach in Turks and Caicos if I had that much insight into the market. But what I can talk about is what makes me feel comfortable and what I enjoy to look at. And I think if you polled everyone in this room or on the streets and asked them to name some famous artists that they knew of, I can assure you Pablo Picasso would be there, Vincent van Gogh would be there, and the Mona Lisa would be there, not realizing that she's not an artist. But those are the sort of artists that would spring to mind. So I go, you know, where I think there's value in the market is, is Van Gogh, which seems ridiculous when Van Gogh paintings sell over $100 million. But I'm not talking about the oils. I'm talking about works on paper. Um, I think there's tremendous value in works on paper. He is the sort of the godfather of, the, of, of our, my old, when I one foot still in the old market, the impressions of mod market. He's every, everyone knew him, everyone gravitated to him. You, and he was, he was an artist that, that, that used works on paper not to d- develop an idea to work towards a final product, but really used the medium and took advantage of the medium. So he was an artist that, that put value in works on paper. And you can buy Van Gogh, Vincent Van Gogh works on paper from anywhere to, and listen, it's all relative, I understand, but anywhere from half a million dollars to two million dollars. And I'm, again, I'm not talking about the late period ones. Um, I'm talking about the slightly early ones. And I think there is tremendous value in, in, in works by that artist from that period. And I probably shouldn't have told the whole room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you just so have... I have a Van Gogh collection. Yeah, so just, you have to disclose how many you have. has gone up in value. Kelly has a collection of Miro. And you've got Miro's. If I was going to think of an artist, I mean, kind of combined with both Helly and Guy are thinking about... My, my only problem with the taking that approach to something, I always feel it's extremely 
dangerous approach to the art market to, to look at it as an investment um, because you tend to make compromises in your decision making and, uh, and then you can kind of fall into the category of where you're really speculating. So I, I, I only want to interrupt by, by saying for, for buyers, yes, but professionally you guys are intermediaries. That you, yeah, you, but we have to think like buyers. We can't think like investors. I mean, when we, when, when, when at the gallery, when we, you know, our family sits down, we try and figure out whether we want to bid on something at auction or buy something, you know, we, you know, our kind of comfort zone is, okay, if we can't sell this, are we happy to own it? Now, obviously, we, that's just not saying, you know, we're happy just to look at it on the wall for the next 20 years. But there by saying we're happy to own it, we're saying we believe in, the, in, in what it is, we believe in the period, we believe in the artist, and we feel that there should be value there going forward. Um, now, the trickiest part now is that these prices have become so high that, you know, galleries like ours and galleries like Helly's, there are really only a handful of galleries out there now that can play at this level where they can still inventory things at these prices. And it's become an extremely... Um, expensive game, and it's, 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 it makes it very hard to come to a decisive decision on what to put away. So, you know, when you're trying to figure out what's going to be the taste in 10, 15 years, I mean, you almost kind of kind of focus on what it is now and, 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 and just kind of hope the market kind of keeps up with you. Because in a way, I mean, you have to take this in the right way, but you, you also have to determine the taste a little bit, you know? And, and what, what, what Nick is saying about galleries today being able to inventory art, it's becoming harder and harder. Art is very capital intensive. It's very hard to leverage the same way in the real estate business. You can go to any bank and get 70, 80% equity, 70, 80% debt against a building or, or a project in the art market. It's a cash on cash business with virtually no leveraging, very capital intensive, the cost of carry, you know, is... Go ahead. No, that, that's, that's exactly why I asked, because, uh, again, uh, you guys have more skin in the game than, than most. To do what you do requires buying something and having confidence that you're willing to own it for whatever period of time right. you think the next buyer comes along, and one presumes you don't want to lose money in, in all of that, since it also costs you to hold on to it just as a, a, a painting in, in its own right. And so, you know, your point about taste is exactly why we're asking you. I mean, people come to you to ask your opinion of the works. I mean, it's always one of these, the paradoxes of the, the art market is that the seller is often also the advisor. It's the person that the buyer goes to for um, advice. Uh, uh, your Just, colleague Michael Finley has once said that you know he'd be selling something to, to people and they'd ask, well, which one would you buy? And it's it's yeah. you know I'm selling it to to you. I I, I can give you my opinion, but you you don't. Because the conflict of interest, as you said, exists between the seller uh, giving his his opinion and the seller is also trying to sell art, run his business. In order to be a successful art dealer, you really have to develop this trust with your collectors, and they have to really believe in what you say. And then over time, you know, the results will speak for themselves. If they have a wonderful collection that they enjoy and simultaneously has also been a very strong and successful investment, 
then they're going to know that your advice, they're going to yeah. appreciate your advice. Uh, now, Nick uh, McLean, I wanted to ask you about where you think, uh, you know. Well, some... just, just um, completing on the, uh, our views, um, I, we don't have quite as much skin in the game as uh, Nick's or uh, Ellie's families, but um, in the, uh, um, the artists that we've looked at, uh, and I feel that definitely um, are still undervalued, uh, are the are two R's, which is Rauschenberg and Richter. Um, and I feel Rauschen, in the case of Rauschenberg, he perhaps unfairly is perceived as being too prolific. Obviously, he produced his, the output in his late period was enormous. But if you compare his market to, say, John's, and I actually think John's is still quite undervalued, even though you know, he's obviously still producing, uh, they, it, it's, it's uh, definitely more, it's definitely at a lower level. Um, I think in the case of Richter, we obviously saw this incredible rise from prices where I remember one abstract picture was $200,000 in two, 2003, it then became a million dollars, and it finally sold for $3 million in 2007. And uh, that market, certainly in the abstract market, was definitely affected in uh, when, they, when the, the first bubble burst in 2008, uh, around the time of Lehman Brothers. And, uh, but since then, it has come back. And it's still, you know, the record price at auction remains, I think it's about, around $15 million. And, you know, he's the greatest, probably, it's a sweeping statement, he's one of the greatest European uh, artists and certainly one of the greatest living artists. And I think his market is, uh, has got a long way to go. And I can well see that um, uh, many of the emerging, country, uh, emerging buyers will... Uh, spend more time looking in at uh, his work. There's such a wide range. From, yeah. Obviously, well, it's interesting to me that that all of you talk about very established names, names that to the outside viewer would say those are all already very valuable artists as the places where you think the value uh, increases, rather than undiscovered artists. I put that in quotes, but less less you know uh, uh, venerated artists. You know, we we've seen some of the we, we talked about briefly beforehand Modigliani, and uh, you know I, you could even go to some of the uh, minor painters that the Russians have brought up into much bigger numbers. But it sounds like you guys view more of more intensity to the things that are already have momentum on, on them that have demand uh, uh, for them now does that mean you also because you all deal in the same market are are competing for some of the same objects either privately or, or, or publicly I'm you're sure all being too nice I'm to sure each other. I'm sure we are. We may not know. Helen and our family have never competed against each other. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, going back to the comment you just made about all four of us saying where we see it going, it's, I mean, it's, it's ironic in a sense that if someone comes to you wanting to start a collection, I can honestly tell them it's less risky on a, you know, on a percentage-wise to tell me you want to spend $10 million buying some things than it is you want to spend $100,000 and go out and find some contemporary art. And um, I think that's one of the very frustrating things about trying to get into collecting these days, and I see that a lot now with some of my peers who are wanting to start collecting but aren't, you know, aren't going to start at a level that we've kind of mainly been discussing is the prices of contemporary art have risen to such that it's real money. It's not, it's not um, you know, kind of 
browsing on a Saturday afternoon through what used to be Soho is now Chelsea and yep. with a checkbook. I mean, you know, it, it's it's real money relative to basically anything you're you know you're basing it against. Yeah, the, and the, so the ten thousand dollar painting is gone. You know, yeah, you know, or, or or if it is, you're really. I mean, at that level, you know, you're really. I mean, it, it could the guy might not even be painting in five years, and so you know, it's 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 a very expensive game to get into but I also strongly believe uh, that uh, the art market is um, you know a, a, not a foolish place to, to allocate some of your assets um, but isn't this a function of, of the asset uh, climate I mean if, if interest rates were much higher and there were places to put your money I'm, I suspect that it Acquiring art would have a different uh, landscape from what you just described. That you wouldn't gravitate towards the the things that everyone gravitates for because you would feel like the investing t- takes place somewhere else, and that you could take many more um, flyers on on works and maybe be more active in the buying and selling. Well, I mean, look, I mean, people always. I mean, I, I'm by no means have a, a great understanding of the financial world and all that's going on and uh, everything, but. If there's one common theme I hear from people is eventually that there will be inflation. And, I mean, there's no greater hedge against inflation than owning art. So I mean, these things that have been kind of repeated and repeated over the last 10 years, and if you're a collector and you look back over your last 10 years and you think about the money you put into art and you think about the money you put in other things, I mean, it's a pattern is starting to develop that people really are now, and I don't know if it's a product of the level of the... Of, of, of the prices or just analysis, greater analysis of the values, but people are really starting to think of art as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, an asset. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I look, I fully anticipate at some point the art market is going to pull back again. I mean, it doesn't just go straight up. Nothing does. The, the reason that art, Nick, what I'm going to add to, I agree with what you said, I'm going to add to what you said. The reason that art, blue chip art, uh, let's use Picasso again as an example, is probably one of the best asset classes in the world is because, first of all, the artist is dead, so he's not painting anymore. The supply is very controlled. All the great paintings are in museums. So whenever a great painting seeps through the market, somehow through an estate, maybe a dealer will sell a painting that they've owned for half a century and their family... There's so little supply left. And there's always this increasing demand with this. The rich are getting richer. The poor, unfortunately, are getting poorer. The middle class is disappearing. But the market is really made up, as we said earlier, of few very wealthy individuals. And as the supply is diminishing, the demand is increasing. Basic economics, that's what's protecting the blue chip art market like Picasso. The fact that... It, we're in a very low interest rate environment. The fact, as you said earlier, this is a hedge against a lot of inflation coming in the future. People view it as a hard asset. And, and it's also something that people enjoy to live with. You know, I mean, who doesn't want to live with a great painting in their house? Well, it's also uh, membership in 
this global class, you were talking about, uh, both you, uh, Nick and Heli, of there's a whole world now of you have a common language through these works of art and through, I'm assuming when you talk about the museum shows, we're not talking about the museum shows uh, in Brazil. There may be some great ones, but the ones that are agenda setting are the ones in uh, London or Paris or New York that people are coming to and seeing and uh, learning from, and they're all sort of participating that, in that uh, uh, together. Does anyone have questions? I have this brief uh, moment. There's a microphone just there. I'm interested to know what uh, your views are on the increase uh, private dealer activity by the auction houses, and is that affecting your business, or is it uh, inconsequential to, to how you work? That's a good question. I mean, I don't think it makes a difference, to be honest with you. It's... It's another avenue that they should explore. It's good for them. It's revenue generating, um, but they're just they're just you know they're just another another ent- entity joining the marketplace to sell pitches privately. At the end of the day, you've got to know where they are. You can set up a big space and and recruit a lot of people, but if you don't know where the pitches are to find and then to sell, um, but I, I welcome them. I think I don't think it's bad for the marketplace at all, if, especially for for collectors. Is there a question of scale in the contemporary art market? We've talked about these bigger and bigger galleries with many locations. And yet, in your market, you guys have very few locations but seem to have a very global uh, a reach. Is it just through personal contacts? Is there a way that you, you sort of... Well, you certainly, you certainly use the art fairs as an avenue to reach to parts of the world where you don't have... Uh, uh, you know, a physical structure. I mean, this year alone, our gallery will do a fair in uh, Basel, Switzerland, Miami, Abu Dhabi, and Hong Kong. Ten years ago, we never even did art fairs. It's just part of the business now. Um, and to go back to what Guy was saying about private sales at Sotheby's or private sales at Christie's, I mean, obviously, it's someone, another person to compete with for pictures, but, again, it's very disturbing news when you hear galleries closing it's encouraging news when you hear galleries opening because one thing you, as the supply becomes more and more limited you know you need people to trade in your field or people are just going to start collecting something else because if they can't get it they're going to get frustrated and move elsewhere so well is there is there a difference between the kind of uh, the clientele in the uh, public markets at the auction houses versus privately I mean, especially Nick and Guy, you've, you've worked in both sides of it. Are, there, are they different people? Are they people, the same people, just you're dealing different transactions uh, with? It's quite often the same people. I mean, you know, ultimately, we don't all have the same clients, though. So, you know, they're clients that we deal with that, you know, likewise, they may not know. And it doesn't preclude, you know, us from dealing with the auction houses and doing private sales with them and whether... It's a picture that we have that they think they can sell and vice versa. Uh, there is a, potentially the issue that they can have by finding themselves in a position where, yes, they can offer the choice. Uh, we can either sell it privately or we can put it into the auction. Um, but obviously, that was the thing that Guy and I used to face all the time when we were in the auction. As you would constantly think, I've got that deadline and I've got to have to get these pictures for it. But uh, ultimately, if you sell it privately, it's, it's an easier process. And it's done, you're not having to wait through to the time when you 
put it into the catalogue, then find the buyers for it, and still look and sell when it leads up to the actual time of the sale. Are those buyers actually going to be on that, on the piece, or actually are they now looking at something else at next gallery? And you know, it's 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 always the issue that they'll face. We obviously don't have that, but I agree with Guy. I mean, it's it makes it a bigger market, and even though their numbers look to be enormous when it was what was it four or five hundred million dollars, it's tiny compared to the overall private art market. Well, you, you just mentioned something uh, that sort of key to something Helly said earlier about, you know, it's so capital intensive, this uh, uh, business, and you obviously don't have infinite amounts of, of it. I, I'm assuming you have to concentrate on fewer pictures, and that also in many ways increases your risk because it's both the asset value, those are the places where you're most likely to make uh, money, but it also means you have to make a limited number of choices. You can no longer sort of buy enormous quantities and hope you'll find something. So uh, me as a gallery, so there's a few artists I have to focus on when I go to the auctions. And the auction game is, as you said, you need a lot of capital because I have to make sure that when I'm buying an artist, I have to make sure that I can afford to keep buying that artist every single time he comes back up at auction if the price is what I find to be very low. Because if I own 10 examples of an artist and the 11th example comes up at auction and I believe them to be worth a minimum of $1 million each, for example, and the 11th one comes up and it's selling for 700000 now, if, that, if I allow that trade to, to go down at 700000 then theoretically that would mean that my 10 other comparable paintings are all worth 700000 and that And that would not be a good investment move on my part, so I would be forced to bid on it. And the idea behind that, the science behind that, is you would, I would either acquire the 11th work at a good value, and I'd be happy to do that, or... If somebody outbid me and it, I would stop bidding at, say, a million and it sold for a million one or a million two, then my ten other works are now presumably worth a million two. So there's a little bit of that going on, which you need a lot of capital to be able to, to, to play that game. I don't really think it's much of a game. I don't like to call it a game, but sometimes it unfortunately plays out that way. Sorry, there's a question. You turn on the mic over. There. Hello. Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay, so uh, th- that's exactly the qu- along the lines of the question that I was asking, but more at the higher end of the market. <clears throat> it was suggested to me in a lunch with uh, an attorney that is in the art world that, you know, obviously the Warhol market has the same underbidders, and so there's a little bit of a, a risk there. But also, I would assume that that takes place at the at the much higher end of the market as well, and if. There's really two or three or four uh, collectors that are supporting a market or a gallery uh, that supports an artist is supporting a market. What is the risk in that asset class should we go into you know, more difficult times, et cetera? You can't always keep bidding up. So there seems to be some risk there. If there's few players in a particular market, as you, if there's two or three of the same people who always show up to buy the same artists, it's a very big risk. Because if you eliminate one of them, now 33% of the market has just been eliminated. And if you eliminate two of them, there's basically no market. 
So you want to enter a market where you feel it's healthy and there's all different sorts of, of buyers, investors, collectors. Once you've established yourself as even in a small section of a market, as, as sort of the market maker uh, with that, and obviously the value to you is having more people involved. Otherwise, you're just you know, doing like cornering a market, which is the most dangerous thing in the world. You end up being the buyer and you're, you also end up being the, the, the loser and all, all that. What do you do to expand that market? How do you do, you do it privately, bring more people uh, in? Is, there, is it just simply talking that art, artist up and trying to get uh, uh, loan the, the works out, you know, get more visibility? Information, exhibitions, um, People are, you know, people are getting smarter. They're they're becoming more aware with the internet, with private curators, and it's just about it's just about giving the information. But it's very important not to speculate because speculation, when it's few players, is is not healthy. And, and you generally people understand it quickly. What's going on? And and you know, in the late '80s. With uh, a lot of the Japanese collectors, there was a lot of speculation on on many many artists that weren't considered great artists, but they were just being speculated on. And you know, when there was a little hiccup, a crash, more than a hiccup, it was a crash in 1989, 1990. You know, they all got, they all, they all lost 60, 70, 80 percent of their investments. So when when I buy these artists. I'm not speculating. I'm not telling other dealers to bid against me to artificially rise the market. I'm not, there's no uh, game that we're playing in the auction room um, that would be that would be disadvantageous to a collector. When I'm buying these, it's because I these works. It's because I believe that they are undervalued, that they're good works, and that I will have the ability to translate that to my collectors. And uh, they will realize that in the future. And I think, I think all of these things we discuss, museum exhibitions, dealers covering artists, that's all tweaking the market on the edge. The core of this marketplace, you've got to remember, Christie's is 10 years older than this country when it gained its independence. I mean, it's a phenomenal run, Christie's. Sotheby's are even older. So this has been going on for centuries I think the core of the reason that this market continues to tick over and it's not just two or three people, it's a steady flow of people that come through the door, even though, as Nick said, it's a sliver of a sliver of a sliver, is everyone in this room is a collector. Everyone has collected. I collected bottle caps. I cannot explain why I collected bottle caps as a seven-year-old. I'm sure everyone else in this room has collected things. Eventually, people get to collect other things. In this case, it's pictures. And that's the reason this market plods along continually, decade after decade, century after century, ups and downs in the marketplace. You talk to some collectors. I, was never, I wasn't around in 1989 for the big collapse. I was around in 2000 with a dot-com bubble burst. I was around two years ago when there, was, when there was a sag in the marketplace. But you can talk to some collectors who have seen four or five of those, those troughs, and they continue to collect. Because for whatever reason, we're geared to collect. And I think that's the reason. All this other stuff we talk about, sending pictures to, to Tokyo, having exhibitions in the mirror, that's just tweaking at the edges. The core is it's human nature to want to collect, and we all do it. And you know what? 200 years from now, I won't be sitting here, or maybe I will, 
<laughs> We're having the same conversation. Christie's and Sotheby's and dealers will still be moving along. And it, you know what? There may be no impressionists in modern pictures now, but we'll have found something else to sell. Hey, maybe even bottle caps. And then I'm laughing. <laughs> and on that note, do we have any other questions? Gentlemen will be around for a few more minutes, so I'm sure you can ask them privately. Thank you so much, gentlemen. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 